Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, the official podcast of Craft Brewed Music, the app that streams better music for serious listeners. Here we explore and get to know the creators of that music. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Aaron and I just finished a wonderful conversation with the great Howard Levy. Uh, many of you probably know Howard as the two-time Grammy-winning founding member of Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, uh, or from any of his many groups playing harmonica and piano in Trio Globo, uh, or from his studio work and touring work with everybody from Paquito de Rivera to John Prine to Paul Simon. Uh, it, tonight, in an effort to bring some focus to our conversation, we decided to um, focus on Howard's classical work. And, uh, and it's, uh, as you'll hear, uh, has been a pretty um, interesting uh, path to explore with him. Yeah, Brian, thank you so much for uh, bringing that particular focus to the uh, to our exploration of uh, Howard Levy's music. It's been a, a real pleasure to uh, to focus on this one particular uh, segment of his uh, of his of his work. Howard Levy has been a part of my uh, musical world for as long as I can remember. Um, and uh, the discovery of Belafek and the Flectones. Um, and following his work in Trio Globo has been something that's really shaped my uh, sensibilities as a music listener and as a musician and made me more adventurous uh, and curious um, and excited about music in the long run. And uh, it was a, a huge honor for me to, to get a chance to speak with him and get some of his insights about uh, improvisation, about composition, and about his relationship with uh, with world music. It's a long time ago now that uh, my my Aunt Wendy gave me a grainy VHS cassette of the Lonesome Pine specials. Oh, boy. Uh, with, <laughs> with, with this this crazy quartet at the end playing Caravan and somebody playing diatonic harmonica on Caravan. And I said, what the yeah. hell is this? I want more of this. Yeah, that <laughs> and, was our first gig. I mean, we didn't even have a name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it wasn't even the Flectones yet, but I, that was a, uh, for my, you know, budding musical sensibilities, that was a, that was a huge moment. And it's a, uh, it's a real, it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Oh, oh, it's nice to talk to you too. <laughs> Turns out that Aunt Wendy features prominently. <laughs> she does. She's come up several times. She's, <laughs> yeah, she's, well, she's a force. <laughs> well, say hi to Aunt Wendy for me. You know, it's like next time I'm in the neighborhood, uh, I'll say hi, you know? You know, in reading kind of more deeply your your backstory and your bio, I hadn't realized that you had, you know, you, you started, it sounds like you started classically on piano. There was some pipe organ in your early training and that you at age 11, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, had the opportunity to study with Nadia Boulanger to study composition, but your yeah. family decided that that was not the right move at that time. Yes. Yes. That was a very interesting thing. I was... You know, I'm just a little kid at the time, and I, I'm like, I was kind of stunned. I mean, 
Paris, Nadi, who is this woman? I had no <laughs> idea who she was. And my parents are, they're thinking about it. And it's like, geez, my mom would have to move to Paris with me. And it just seemed like kind of out of, out of bounds almost like, like this too much. You know, I'm right. just, I was, uh, you know, I had my friends and going to school and everything like that. And uh, so we just, we said no, but it was, I didn't realize how much of a, an honor it was really for them to think of me in that, in that light. You know? Right. How did that come to, how did that opportunity even come to pass? How were, how did you get on her radar or, or whatever, whatever that was? Well, I mean, the school, uh, I'm sure, uh, recommends people, you know, uh, it's one of the leading music schools in New York and I'm sure that they have direct connections to, uh, to her had obviously Juilliard and, and, uh, Manhattan and Manus and, um, you know, are the main three music schools in New York and the talented young kids. And, uh, you know, I was one of the few kids in the prep division who improvised and wrote his own music, you know, and, uh, and were you composing classically at that age? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote some like string, like violin, viola, uh, violin, cello, piano pieces. Cause my, my sister played some violin and I, my mom played cello when she was in high school. And so I thought, Oh, I could write some stuff for the family to play. And, you know, I wrote some things for piano and violin. I still have some of the music. I, I, I saved it, believe it or not. Um, and, uh, you know, the piano stuff I wrote was derivative sounding of, of types of music I liked. Um, there, there was one piece, though, in particular that, that really stands out. And um, it was a habanera that I wrote when I was 10 mm-hmm. or 11. And I don't exactly know why I wrote it, except for the fact that uh, Manhattan was in Spanish Harlem. Mm-hmm. And uh, so maybe I heard, I know I heard, music kind of coming out of people's windows and, you know, out of little speakers on the front of stores and, um, and, you know, so much Latin music is in the air in New York city. You can't avoid it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I wrote this really nice tune and I later expanded it and turned it into a kind of Rondo form with a, a Cuban mambo section in the middle. And, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of the few things I wrote when I was a kid that I followed through on later. Huh. And so you, you went through high school, not having gone to Paris, you went at some point, moved to Chicago and went to Northwestern where you mm-hmm. started to get play jazz and write and then had in the early seventies now, and then had this big career doing lots of different things. And you, and your first recorded classical work on, on one of your albums comes in 19, well, features a piece written in 1995 in the interim from the early seventies to 95, had you moved away from classical music or was it always going on in the background? Both. I mean, I, I was concentrating first off, I, I kind of have a, you know, a dual musical identity between the piano and the harmonica, right? Uh-huh, right. Uh, they're two entirely different instruments and stylistically the harmonica the diatonic harmonica that I play is mostly known for being a blues instrument, country, folk, and stuff like that. So I got a certain amount of gigs playing that and piano, actually, in the sort of the folk and blues and uh, country music areas, um, as well as having a totally separate side of me that played lots of jazz and composed a lot of very, you know, interesting and challenging jazz tunes. This throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Um, and, but classical music was always, um, you know, I always loved it. I, I never, um, uh, banished it or anything. I, I, you know, it was, it was a part of, of stuff that I listened to, but I also was also listening to a lot of w- what we now call world music. Uh, so music of many different cultures. And I would say that all of these different elements combined together in me. Uh, on both of my instruments and other instruments that I play. So that uh, when I started composing classical things, I had multiple influences, similar to, you know, like Bartok in a certain way, where he was listening to the folk music of of, uh, Hungary and Romania and uh, wrote a lot of music, you know, based around those type of uh, things. And Stravinsky heard lots of Russian folk music and... uh, you know, inserted all sorts of influences like that into his, 
his music. Uh, so, you know, when I wrote my first big classical piece, that Harmonia Mundi in 1995, uh, I had, I had been touring a lot and had played tons of music by that time. You know, I had been in the Flectones and quit the Flectones and was touring with a Lebanese oud player named Rabia Bukhalil and all sorts of other people. And so all of those influencers are in that piece. It's a very, uh, gee whiz, I mean, very, a lot of cross-pollination in that piece of music. Right, and, and we, we hear all that. We want to talk talk about some of that. I wanted to um, to to discuss a little bit about the title of the piece, Harmonia Mundi, a harmonious mm-hmm. world. You write in the liner notes, the title is a somewhat ironic comment on the complex harmony that can exist between cultures and the political realities that throw so many people into conflict with one another. It's an ironic comment, perhaps, and I found it also ironic to be thinking about this 25 years later when uh, it certainly seems that no time could have been less harmonious than what we're living through now. Well, the world has gone through different phases of uh, hostility and cooperation. I mean, uh, my dad fought in World War II, and that was a... (laughs) That was like, uh, you know, that inspired Tolkien to write The Lord of the Rings. I mean, that was that seemed like it was going to be the end of the world. Mm. So, um, you know, just putting it in perspective, what we're going through now, uh, there's just so many more people in the world. So there's five times more people in the world now than, than there were when I was born. So there's exponentially more chances to for interactions between different people and different cultures, different political alliances. So... The world's a trickier place now because everything is so interconnected. Um, but it also provides very rich opportunities for increased understanding as well, if you take it that way. And I think uh, that is right now being reflected in the political climate, the way the climate has changed uh, since the uh, last American presidential election. And I and I really pray that, that people will uh, pick up the ball and return to the desire to understand and get along with each other and, and have with full respect for where everyone's coming from. You know, that's the thing about it. You can't, um, candy coat things. I mean, uh, in all the different cultures and all the different styles of music that I've played, I, I try to, to play them, whether it's Afro Cuban music or Brazilian music or Middle Eastern music or whatever it might be. I try to put myself in the frame of mind of the people whose culture this music is coming from and, and respect it. But of course I'm always going to sound like me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not worried about that. Uh, but I, I, I find that a tremendous amount of rich material to, uh, to use in uh, compositions uh, from all of this, these, these different styles of music that I love from all over the world. The particular conflict that uh, you allude to in the liner notes uh, for Harmonia Mundi, given that it's written in the mid-90s and <clears throat> you reference the cellist of Sarajevo and yeah. you have this you know, very obvious love of Balkan music, was, was that particular conflict uh, the one you had in mind uh, when you were conceiving this piece? Oh, ab- uh, for, the se- for the second movement, absolutely. I mean, it was... Uh... It was something that was very much in the news. And I was touring in Europe at the time. And I actually saw uh, there were these buses lined up outside the Frankfurt, uh, Germany, uh, main train station um, of guys who were from these countries, you know, Bosnians, Serbs, Croats, whoever they were. They were going home to fight in this war, hmm. taking buses. Uh, and I thought, God, this is crazy. I mean, Europe went through World War One and World War Two. How could this continent that has been so absolutely ravaged by death and destruction from these horrible wars engage in another one? How, how could they possibly do it? And I actually bought some books that explained some of the historical context for the fighting because it seemed in um, just, I couldn't even understand it. So... I was reacting emotionally uh, to what I perceived as a tragedy. Um, and uh, that was what inspired the second movement. And 
especially that cello cadenza, uh, which is played so magnificently by uh, the cellist on the recording, Barbara Hafner. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask specifically about that cadenza. Was that uh, an improvised cadenza or was that uh, composed? I wrote it. And she just played it so beautifully. It almost sounded improvised. I mean, she's a really, really fantastic musician. And, uh, you know, when you get a commission from a group, and I haven't had a lot, but this was the first one I had, and I I knew all the people, and I knew how they played. And Mm. so that was part of why I wrote it. And I I had the greatest respect for everyone's playing, and uh, I knew that Barbara could play anything and Mm -hmm. have the right feel in any kind of rhythm or... uh, anything so like at the end of the first movement when the cello plays that i knew she could just nail that too because she had a a a, a sensitivity toward all different kinds of music and pop music and rock and latin music and from playing for years in the studio We used to play on jingle sessions together. No, no kidding. Yeah, and and uh, uh, Sandy and uh, Bob Morgan. Uh, yeah, that's where they got the idea uh, to, to commission a work for me. They just sort of, yeah, on faith because we were playing jingles, and they thought that'd be really interesting to get Howard to write a piece for us. And uh, yeah. they approached me, and I went, um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's it's interesting to hear that. As I was listening to it, I mean, it, it's no shock to to me or to Brian that you know you're uh, such a chameleon when it comes to different genres or different musical cultures. But uh, the uh, the ensemble is right with you the whole time. Whenever there's a shift, it's 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 seamless, uh, and it doesn't seem to be. Uh, you know, uh, driven by, by you alone. Everyone else seems to be on board with those, uh, uh, those kind of chameleon shifts from one to another. Yeah, that was, we had six rehearsals. It was uh, a tremendous amount of work. The first rehearsal was really rough. I thought, my God, I want to jump out the window. And the second <laughs> rehearsal sounded a lot better. And then by the third rehearsal, the musicians were saying, oh, yeah, because they were doing, you know, works by other composers, more famous, uh, obviously. Uh, 
everyone's more famous composer than I am. So, uh, <laughs> so they said, okay, let's do the Levy. I thought the Levy. <laughs> another Levy on the program. I've, I've graduated, you know, <laughs> and, and they started really enjoying it, enjoying playing. And, uh, that was, you know, the recording is actually the first ever performance of the piece. It was live, uh, at the it's a brilliant recording for all yes thank you it, it was it's a great recording a great engineer uh he got the balance of the group and he got my sound uh, beautifully and it was it was thrilling i remember it's a dim memory but i remember feeling swept up by the music uh very excited and it, it never i never felt that in the rehearsals and so it was a, a kind of everything kind of galvanized uh in this first performance I love the first movement, I, and I love when the ensemble enters this movement after your uh, lyrical, improvised introduction you do. Mm. And the when you enter with that rhythmic figure, uh, I can't help but in my mind's eye see Igor Stravinsky trying to drop a freight train. Yeah, uh, thank you. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the Rite of Spring was a you know huge inspiration for me, and uh, you know his rhythmic vitality. Uh, was so different from any classical composer that came before him. Uh, it had to do with being Russian and also writing for for dance. That many people forget that this was it was a ballet. So that right. he was seeing movement and it related to the human body. It was not an intellectual exercise. Uh, and so, you know, I had been playing all this Middle Eastern music and all sorts of Balkan music and everything. So uh, that five eight feel for me, it was totally natural. It took a while for the musicians to be able to get the first four bars right. <laughs> but, but the interesting thing is that um, that improvised introduction, I didn't even know I was going to do it until right before we started. And I turned to them and I said, I'm going to improvise something before we start. I love that uh, you know you've made a a career out of uh, taking uh, the diatonic harmonica where no diatonic harmonica has gone before, uh, and you know capable of doing things that could be played on any wind instrument or any stringed instrument uh, in a in a chromatic scale and multiple octaves, and yet uh, you frequently go back and embrace the most harmonica things in the harmonica. And that's why I love this moment in the tune where it's this uh, it's this train chug that is like a classic of American blues harmonica. And yet it's weird because it's 5-8 and then there's tritones in the ensemble <laughs> afterwards. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I just happened to have that same key harmonica sitting next to me. <laughs> I looked down and there it is. Yeah, I, I, I changed harmonicas several times in this piece just for... Um, you know, there were certain key harmonicas that felt better for certain parts of the piece. So I used uh, probably four different ones, I think. Yeah. Throughout throughout all three movements. Yeah, I think I used mostly a G, and because uh, that's actually my favorite key harmonica in certain ways, and it's the one I think on directly to the keyboard. Uh, because mm -hmm. in my mind, 
when most of the time when I'm playing harmonica, I'm seeing a piano keyboard in my mind. And the uh, G harmonica was the first one that I bought when I was uh, 18. So that's the one that kind of got linked more directly, most directly in my head to the piano. The first harmonica you bought, you were, you were age 18? Uh-huh. And so at that point, it was all piano and... Yeah. And well, when was the pipe organ? When, when did that... Uh... Earlier, yeah. When I went to a private school um, uh-huh. from seventh grade through high school in Brooklyn, and they happened to have a beautiful pipe organ. It was um, formerly a Christian school. Uh, I can't remember, Anglican, Episcopalian, I don't remember which, but like that, that part of it had disappeared a long time ago. But the, uh, the vestige of that was that we went to chapel and sang Protestant hymns two mornings a week. Um, so I know lots of hymns, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. even though uh, about a third of the school was Jewish, uh, yeah. New York City's <laughs> diversity is a lot of Italian and Jewish kids, but it was, a uh, you know, the Protestant hymns were, were sung. Uh, and the, uh, the guy who was, uh, the organist was a salesman for this organ company. So, uh, he really got a great uh, pipe organ, a molar, a three manual that had thousands of pipes. And, you know, I heard this thing and I had never heard a pipe organ before, you know, where, where would I have heard one? Uh, <laughs> you know, most temples didn't have pipe organs. Let's put it that way. Right. And the music of Bach on an organ was like unbelievable. I, 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 I hadn't really liked Bach that much on piano. It sounded kind of, you know, rigid to me or, or dry or academic or something, but on the organ, it was a whole different story. And so I was like 14 and 15 when I played the organ and, uh, you know, got my foot pedal chops together and did it for a few years. Um, and it's, it was a major inspiration for me, actually. Yeah. I was surprised to read that. I was not aware that you had a, a pipe organ experience. And I thought it was ironic that you went from the least portable instrument <laughs> to, to the most portable instrument shortly thereafter. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was weird. I, I, well, it was from hearing blues, Chicago blues. A friend of mine had some albums and I heard the sound of the harmonica and I fell in love with it and went to Manny's on 48th street and bought a har- uh, blues harp and G for $2 and 25 cents. And, you know, tried to bend notes. And, uh, finally, after about six months, I was able to, to suddenly I had a, like an epiphany and I could one minute, I couldn't bend notes. The next minute I was bending notes and playing all these blues licks. And it was like the first moment, the first minute of the rest of my life, you know, when <laughs> it was actually freshman orientation week at Northwestern that it happened. Wow. And, and who were, and who were your, your blues guys that, uh, that you looked to for, uh, for inspiration? Well, uh, Paul Butterfield was my favorite, and uh, James Cotton, and uh, Junior Wells, and uh, Little Walter, and a whole bunch of these guys, guys like that, you know. But those were the main ones, and I heard some of those guys live. I heard Butterfield and James Cotton live, and uh, some other people as well. Um, and Helen Wolf, too. I heard him live. Uh, wow. So, uh, yeah, being in Chicago was like, the world of the of the blues was like right there. And New York was more abstract. And I, I think that's probably part of the reason why I got so much into the harmonica was moving to Chicago. It has something to do with it. Right. And yet you did not stay within that uh uh that uh, that particular genre. You were able to expand it in ways uh you know hitherto thought not possible on that diatonic harmonica. Yeah, I, you know, after a few months of playing, I had figured out how to bend all the notes you could bend on the draw notes on the bottom and on the blow notes on the top. Um, And I was trying to apply my piano knowledge uh, to the harmonica and try to, you know, play scales and arpeggios and, you know, play some Bach tunes on it. And I was frustrated that there were a bunch of notes missing. There were actually uh, six notes missing, which... As a pianist, you know, <laughs> this is like you, know, you go to a music a practice room and there's a piano with broken keys. Oh, my God. You know, let's go to the room next door, like where all 88 keys work, you know. Right. Not used to an instrument that doesn't have all the notes on it. And in with my 18-year-old logic, I assumed that since it was an instrument, it had to have all the notes on it. And so I just started exploring ways and I, I'm not going to play right now unless you want me to, but, uh, I just ex- started exploring ways in which I thought 
maybe I'd have a chance of getting some of those missing notes. And I found out how to do it uh, just by trial and error. And, uh, you know, it turns out that there were some people before me who had squeaked out a few of these notes, but it had never become incorporated into like the mainstream of harmonica playing. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, uh, because usually if people wanted to go beyond, uh, the limits of the diatonic, they would pick up a chromatic, which is a totally different instrument. It's like comparing the mandolin to the violin or something, or the valve trombone to a slide trombone. They're, they're, you know, they're cousins, but they're, they're totally different in the ways in which they, they operate, but you can't bend notes on it. it it's a totally different sound. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. I wasn't drawn to it when I found out about it. Uh, I thought, gee, that sounds kind of mechanical. Why, why sh-? And I can't play the blues on it. I, I love that bluesy, uh, yeah. organic feeling of the diatonic. And I was determined to try to uh, take this instrument as far as I possibly could into all the different realms of music. Well, a great showcase for that is... Um... Movement three, actually, in Harmonia Mundi, you take it through all of those different uh, different styles, different parts of the world, and then you arrive back at, you know, back at the beginning, back at the blues. Blues, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, writing it was very exciting. It was, it was sort of scary. I, I, I it just or- organically took shape as I was writing. Um, and I would say that I wasn't really aware of how interconnected so many of the elements of the piece were until I heard the recording. Uh, because the unity of the piece was, was kind of, in the back, way in the back of my mind, there was a compositional unity and uh, between all three of the main themes of the, of the three movements. And, uh, and like I said, I, I, I just wrote it with pencil and paper, you know, that's, that's the only way I knew how to write. And I didn't know what it sounded like until I heard it. And um, it was a, a fascinating process. And I knew how long it was supposed to be that I wanted to make sure it was at least 15 minutes long. So I, figured out like what tempos the movements were. And I figured out how many bars would take about five minutes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> really, that's what I did. It was like a template. And then I said, okay, let me fill it in. And, see, <laughs> and of course, not every movement is five minutes long, but you know, they're not too unbalanced. They're not, one of them isn't too much longer or shorter than that, you know? Right. Um, right. And that was my idea. Um, and then finishing up with something bluesy, uh, 
it just seemed like like the right thing to do uh somehow <laughs> yeah it's it's it sounds like the right thing to do as well and uh, Brian and I try each one of these episodes to to better articulate what we what we mean when we talk about the the craft brewed music aesthetic and I think this is really the essence of it uh when you have an artist who has the listening background and the sensibilities to take these these leaps uh from one one style to another and also the technical uh facility to make it sound authentic uh when these shifts occur um and this is this this ending uh, of the the third movement is uh is just a, an archetype of what what we have in mind when we talk about that hmm. Hmm. wow cool we're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, which is us. Craft Brew Music is a curated streaming service. It's the app that streams better music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, you need to download the app and get a free trial. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. It's $5 a month or $50 a year, less than a latte. We're the Small Batch Streaming App, available at the App Store and at Google Play. Or to hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbrewedmusic.com. Well, and that brings up a question about genre. You know, we, we talk about on, on this, you know, when we, did, when we decided we were going to have you on the show, we always knew we were going to have you on the show, and it became the next thing in front of us. The, your, your catalog is so vast. All the, the you know, we, we, we didn't feel like we could adequately talk about the whole thing. So we were trying to figure out what a good way to approach this would be. And we decided we would talk about the classical, the classical music, the classical work of Howard Levy. And so we put kind of the, that stylistic definition on it. And even with those parameters, which by the way, was a very fascinating way to, to listen to your, mm. your work for a couple of weeks. Um, even with that, the styles kind of fall away and you become, you know, just adrift a, a uh, in music in, in a wonderful way. And so how do you think, I'm curious how you think of genre or whether you think of genre? Oh, quite definitely I do. Uh, because I play so many different kinds of music. Like I was saying, um, you know, drawing on so many different cultural influences. Uh, but I also have respect for the forms of, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm talking about jazz, you know, I want it to sound like jazz, you know. <laughs> and if I'm talking about blues, I want it to sound like blues. And, uh, you know, Eastern European music, I want it to sound like that. So um, I try to be faithful to the aesthetics and the traditions of all of the different styles of music that I love and that I know how to play. Um, so that's, I think that's why a piece like Harmonia Mundi works is because it's not um, superficial. Uh, my influences are, are deep. I feel them. Uh, and so when I play them and when I write them, I try to uh, have some depth in the writing, you know? Yeah. Hmm. The, uh, you mentioned you know, uh, Chicago with the, uh, the, the, the blues scene and, and harmonica and growing up in New York and Latin music being a, a presence. I'm curious where your relationship with Balkan music came from. <laughs> well, uh, that's interesting. I, I just saw some Balkan folk dance stuff at a festival in Chicago, a uh, folk festival. They were dancing to these crazy rhythms with live musicians playing, and it just blew my mind. I had just never heard anything like that before. I couldn't count the rhythms. They were so fast. It's like, wait a minute, where's one? It went by me like six times while I was trying to count it. Like, well, where is it? You know, what kind of rhythms are these? <laughs> like, what is this stuff? So I actually bought a bunch of albums of the music and listened to it and tried to analyze it and slow it down and uh, I was just fascinated by it. This was uh, in the mid-1970s. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, after I got back from being on the road, my first big road gig with John Prine, I also wanted to start a, a band to play Balkan music. Um, it was a weird thing. I, I, I found this guy who played Kaval, which is the Balkan flute, and, and some percussion. And he had been a, a folk dancer too, so he understood the, all the rhythms. And we got together and started jamming my house. And I said, you know, I have a lot of jazz musician friends who'd probably be fascinated by some of this stuff. 
And so we formed a group called the Balkan Rhythm Band, which had an album out on Flying Fish Records recorded in the early 80s. Um, some original material, Balkan folk stuff. We had two women who sang in Bulgarian and Macedonian. Hmm. And, uh, oh, I learned so much uh, about the music playing in that band. And I was actually mostly playing soprano and tenor sax, believe it or not. No oh. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And percussion uh, and a little bit of harmonica. I hadn't quite figured out how to navigate some of this stuff on harmonica. Um, and a little bit of piano. So uh, that's where the, my love of Balkan music started. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then, of course, it would just, it would just continue to, to grow, and I would continue to become more and more interested in it and more fluent at it. And uh, in a way, it actually was a fantastic preparation for playing in the Flectones because mm -hmm. of all the odd time meter stuff that Bela just naturally gravitated to on the banjo. Well, I was going to ask that next, whether that was kind of your stamp on the flectones, the, the tendency toward uh, broken meters. Oh. That, was, that, was, that was a shared oh, interest yeah. of uh, yours and, and Bela's. Oh, yeah. And Victor and Roy, too. I mean, they could just play in any rhythm whatsoever that you ever threw at them, in seven and nine and 11, whatever it was. So I had never been in a band uh, with guys who were so flexible and so open and worked so hard at things, you know, uh, if... Uh, so that was, yeah, that was a kind of definitely uh, I employed a lot of the stuff I had learned about Balkan music in the Flectones. Yeah. Brian actually compelled me to uh, to uh, re-listen to uh, Life in Eleven last night, which I, oh, yeah. I enjoyed thoroughly, uh, but could not count. But that's uh, how, how you've told me, you know, how easy it is to count that. It is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's the first recording I did in Eleven was uh, the first Trio Globo album. It's an arrangement I did of Manfredo Fest's uh, originally Samba Trace called Brazilian Dorian Dream. And at first it was a slow three. Down, two, three, one, two, three. And I changed it to So it's one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. And the twos can be felt, they're all dance steps. So the two is a quick and the three is a slow. So it's quick, quick, slow, quick, quick, quick. So you're up in the air a little longer on the three, you know, gravity. organic and physical and so that was recorded in 1993 or 94 maybe uh and life in 11 uh i had shown bela the the bulgarian 11 uh years before and he wasn't comfortable playing it it was something he was intrigued by and he worked at it and so when we were putting together the rocket science album in 2010 um I said, uh, you know, I've been working on all these, I've come up with all these melodies in 11, the Bulgarian 11 on the harmonica. And I played it and he thought, oh, that's really cool. Uh, so we collaborated on that and uh, put it together. And that's how the tune came about. And it's, again, it's something, it's sort of bluesy at the same time. It's like, mm -hmm. a, like a blues shuffle uh, at its root in a weird way. But it, I mean, using the properties that the harmonica gives you to play chordal rhythms. Uh, I'm trying to look for the right one here. Uh, where's my A? <laughs> I don't know where it is. Oh, I know it I should be one. noted that Life in Eleven won a Grammy as well for, for you guys. Yeah, that was uh, pretty thrilling. I, I, was, I was stunned, actually, that we won a Grammy for Best Composition, Instrumental Composition. And so it's like a... I'm just doing it slowly. But it's a... Uh, And I'm breaking up each group of two and three with my tongue. 
Tuka 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 tataka tuka. Tuka tuka taka tuka tuka. It's like a drum rudiment. It starts on the on the inhale. It's harmonica. You, the notes are in both directions on each hole. It's the only wind instrument that uses the breath in both directions. So, draw, blow, draw, blow, draw, blow, draw, blow, draw, blow. <laughs> like drum rudiments you know so yeah that's the groove and then the melody comes sort of organically out of that and goes all over the place and and Bela wrote some really really interesting different kinds of 11s um so it's a, a you know a melding between our two uh compositional senses and of course Victor and Roy you know figured out how to make the most of it mm-hmm. and there's like slower 11s in there that 11 4 and 11 2 all sorts of different kinds of 11s for the solo section <laughs> it comes like life, life in 44 <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's it's cool. I mean, it, it's it's such a groove though that you don't you're not even aware uh, that it's in a uh, that, it, that it's in an eleven until you try to to figure it out or you try to you know try to dance to it. Yeah, it, uh, it's it's kind of a in a weird way. It's like a five with a little bulge in the middle. One two three four five. One two three four five. You know, three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and someone yeah. told me that they thought that take five. Uh, came about through uh, the Breckers did uh, Breckers uh, uh, the uh, the Brubeck group uh, Brubeck yeah toured uh, Eastern Europe on a State Department tour and uh, they heard all this wild Eastern European music and if you think about it take five it, it might be a misunderstanding of a Bulgarian eleven. <laughs> it could be played in 11. <laughs> you should totally record take 11. Yeah, I might. I might do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, the I mean, obviously, the Balkan music has you know, very uh, complex rhythmic elements, but some of the the melodic elements uh, I, I think resemble that that uh, which one can hear in uh, Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewish music. And I'm wondering, was that a part of your upbringing in New York? Did, did was that part of your your sonic landscape? I to a certain extent, yeah. I mean. I grew up listening to a lot of uh, uh, Jewish classical violin music, uh, violinists playing stuff like uh, uh Rondo Capriccioso and the, um, you know, the uh, Zagurna Weissen by Sarasate and, mm-hmm. you know, these gypsy scales. Uh, that thing, that's the fourth mode of the harmonic minor. There's a mm-hmm. tremendous amount of those scales in um, Eastern European music. Uh, whether it's Greek music, Romanian music, uh, so-called Jewish music, which is the Jews who lived in these places, you know, they picked up on these scales, which right. were sort of a synthesis of Middle Eastern and Eastern European uh, tonalities. Uh, and so, yeah, I grew up hearing some of that stuff in the temple as well. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, these scales were familiar to me. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, so we, we could clearly, I think, talk all night and uh, we're also as clearly going to have to have you back <laughs> to, to, yeah, to sure. talk about more uh, parts of this. But to to kind of to work toward the conclusion of our conversation, I wanted to fast forward 
I guess, five years to the writing of the Concerto for Diatonic Harmonica and Orchestra, Hmm. um, which must be your largest scale classical work. Is that right? So far. (laughs) (laughs) I'd really love to write another one. I'm, you know, I've, I've performed this concerto at least 30, 35 times all over the world now. It's just really, really kind of a cool thing uh, that people wanted to hear it, you know, the harmonica. But it's really the first real true uh, concerto written for the diatonic because all the previous ones, there were a lot of uh, concertos written for the chromatic harmonica because you could play all the notes. So uh, this orchestra called me and... uh, and they asked if I could uh, play one of these more famous concertos. And I said, I don't play the chromatic harmonica. This is 1999, probably, or 898. I don't remember what year. I said, but, you know, maybe I could write one for my instrument. And I explained the way it worked. And they said, basically, don't call us, we'll call you. And I never, I didn't think, <laughs> you know. Um, and then they called me back like three months later. I had totally forgotten about it. And they said, we're really interested in this idea of you writing a concerto. And I went, you are? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to write a concerto. I said I could, but so I guess <laughs> I can. Yeah, this piece uh, actually is much more conventional harmonically than Harmonia Mundi was. Um, and rhythmically, I decided not to write anything uh, too rhythmically challenging. And, and one of the other things I'd like to point out about my compositional skills, uh, I never studied composition, okay? I never studied arranging. It's all seat of the pants, uh, just from experience and also from playing so many instruments. I, I, I play flute. I, I can play some clarinet. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I play mandolin actually very well. So I understand all the string instruments and their fifths tunings. And I've worked a lot with, with string players, especially Eugene Friesen, cello, mm-hmm. cello Lobo. I was, mm-hmm. He made me very aware of what the cello can do. Yeah. And uh, I've listened to tons of live and recordings of the Chicago Symphony. Um, and, uh, you know, so I felt like I had a fighting chance at being able to write for these instruments that I know how they work. You know, I'm not going to write anything that you can't play, you know. Uh, and, and one of the most gratifying things for me is when I play my concerto, if, if some orchestra member, someone, some string player will come up to me and say, we really like what you wrote for the second violins or something. Mm-hmm. Like that, I feel great about that because I try to right for the whole orchestra to have, you know, all the instruments have a voice. It's not like they're just playing pads while I'm blowing. You right. Know? I mean, there's one part in the first movement that's in seven in triplets. It's kind of like an Irish melody, but it happens to be in seven. It just comes out organically that way. And, uh, and, uh, that, that, that first movement has a very strong Celtic, uh, thread to it. Yeah. Yes. That, that surprised a lot of people. I, I me included. I, I, because I thought, what am I going to write? I have all these different things I can do. And most people expected it to sound like jazz, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to write something that sounded like jazz. I wanted to write it, you know, with really classical sounding. Um, so, yeah, this this Celtic stuff, some of it were, were, were things that had been knocking around my head for a while. Uh, and I didn't know what to do with them. And it turned out, sort of like with Harmonia Mundi, that a whole bunch of these things were interconnected and more profoundly than I realized. And again, only after I got through 
writing it and heard, hearing the recording, was I aware of the unity uh, between the three movements. At the end of the cadenza, you know, you've done a bunch of, uh, um, you know, very violin-like uh, uh, gestures uh, mm-hmm. that are virtuosic, but you end with this totally overblown harmonica chord at the end of it that is unmistakably idiomatic for your instrument. Yeah. And I love the way that that, that, that improvisation ends with something that's like, I can do whatever I want on this harmonica, but I'm going to do the most harmonica thing possible at the end. Yeah, very much so. I, I it's, uh, it was very organic the way that came about. And, uh, that was an interesting thing of, uh, playing a cadenza because, uh, you know, classical music has always had, uh, cadenzas in its, con- in the concertos from the very earliest times. And way back when, all classical musicians were expected to know how to improvise. I mean, everybody could improvise. Um, and so you were supposed to improvise the cadenza. But of course, uh, over the course of time, uh, some of the really great players wrote out their cadenzas, and they were so fantastic that people just said, well, forget it. I can't make up something like that. And they started playing Fritz Chrysler's cadenzas or Carl Flesch's cadenzas or those are the two most famous. And then uh, Joachim, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the cadenzas for the Brahms concerto. I mean, these were fantastic cadenzas. Leopold Auer, I think, wrote one for Tchaikovsky. I can't remember who wrote But as far as we know, Paganini was was uh, improvising it each time he would do one. Yeah, that's what I was, I'm given to understand. Um, and I'm sure Mozart improvised all the cadenzas in his piano concertos, as did Beethoven. Um and uh, so I decided that no, I would just improvise my cadenza. Well, at the first performance, you know, 35 musicians come to a screeching halt and it's just me. I go, <laughs> oh, shit. I'm, I'm, excuse my French. Um, oh, drat. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 we're going to add more profanity in later in this don't, interview. Don't, we, we can edit out the drat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I just realized, like, I had a vague idea what I was going to do, but it felt really different from playing a cadenza with a jazz trio, which I had mm-hmm. done a ton of. Uh, so I got through it somehow with my knees shaking, literally my knees were shaking. And uh, I realized I have to get some sort of a vocabulary for my cadenza. Mm-hmm. And I practiced stuff. It's like, and then I, I came up with a phrase to end the cadenza with, which is the one you hear on the recording. The one that goes, uh, it's sort of an echo of, of the, the theme in, uh, the Irish sonic theme in seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so that way, at least the conductor knows when I'm going to finish. Right. <laughs> you know, there's a fighting chance of counting the orchestra back incorrectly at the end. Um, so there's, there's a lot to consider and, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 I just thought that in the tradition of classical music, I should give myself the chance to do it differently, a little differently each time by leaving myself some space to improvise in each movement. Thank <laughs> you. 
the second movement, uh, I also I also use some extended techniques on the harmonica where I'm playing uh, like a drone and a melody at the same time. Yes, uh, right. Something that, uh, and I tried to make the orchestration kind of spare in those parts where people wouldn't think it was other instruments playing it, you know, so some pizzicato stuff going on. Um, and the second movement starts with that acapella um, thing. Um, it sounds like a, like an, like a, like a hurdy gurdy or an organ grinder. Yeah. Yeah. It has that, a little bit of that feeling. I'm looking for the right key harmonica here. I know I have it. Here it is. This thing though. that thing yeah right and it's uh I, it was very amusing to see the violinist in the orchestra when i would do this at a first rehearsal they would go, hmm, how's he doing that <laughs> yeah, where's he hiding the second harmonica <laughs> exactly and and then the third movement actually a lot of it was inspired by paganini uh i had been listening to paganini's uh, solo violin caprices for years like from the late 60s probably i, I was just entranced by the idea of how much he was able to to do on a violin that seemed impossible and so mm -hmm. he was a very major inspiration for me to try to do the seemingly impossible on a diatonic and so especially this uh the part that goes uh <laughs> sloppy right now but that was very much inspired by by paganini Prague at the Rudolfinum uh, after I recorded it with the Czech National Symphony. It just felt like I had come home. Playing that Ooh. movement there, the people just, I could just feel that they loved it, that it, that it just reached their hearts. Uh, there I was like at the confluence of the Danube and the Vlata River, you know, that's where this concert hall is. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just like, oh my goodness, now I know who I wrote this piece for. <laughs> and when I got through uh, with the third movement, and you know, it was a very good orchestra, a really good conductor, Paul Freeman, uh, may, his, may he rest in peace. Uh, uh, people just went crazy. I, I ended up playing three solo encores afterwards, which i never done more than two. I mean, and it doesn't feel right to do more usually. And but the people just kept wanting to hear more. And I probably could have done five, but just felt like three is enough. But yeah, you feeling the love from a classical audience is something that's really special. Yeah. Because you have to play what you play at a, a high level of technical perfection. And but if you if you put that extra soul into it and they feel your intent they can love you back in a way that is just indescribable. And uh, I really felt it there. Uh, it's just something that I will always remember. Thank you for listening. 
Craft Brood Music, both the podcast and the streaming service, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Secondly, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brood Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.